Chapter 52. Early the next morning, we're sitting blurry-eyed inside a sleek cafe in Terminal 2F Paris Charles de Gaulle Airport, watching travelers come and go with their luggage and colorful clothes. People from all over the world hurry by us, well-dressed, well-fed, and as the French say, comfortable in their own skin. It is several light years away from the jungle camps we have come from. We are numb. The night before, I had driven down the A1 highway from Calais, pulling off the road for snacks at a truck stop. After we ate, Louisa and I curled up in the front seat for a nap while Lev stretched out in the back for some much-needed rest. Before dawn, we arrived at the airport, dropped off the rental car, and caught a shuttle to Terminal 2C. Now, the three of us are inside this modernistic terminal, sitting on bar stools at the Columbus Cafe and looking like sad, tired birds forced to make an emergency landing en route to milder climates. The awful jungle camps are behind us, but we can't shake the feelings that the camps have engendered. Our clothes still smell of the immigrants' exotic spices, a constant reminder of the heart-wrenching reality we had just witnessed. Our spirits feel sucked dry, as if the camps were like a malignant cancer that had somehow metastasized inside of us, ravaging all hope and desire. Waiting to board our flight, we sip green tea and espressos in this peaceful corner of the busy airport. Physically here, but thinking about all the people with broken lives stuck in limbo back in the war zone of the camps. Lev finally speaks up, jolting us back to the here and now. This cafe is named after the man who discovered America, he says. I'm about to do the same. Luisa and I do not respond. We glance at one another and turn back to Lev, both nodding our agreement. I know I should be happier right now, Lev continues. But I'm not. Just like the way you need friends to share the bad times with, you also need friends to share the good times with. Otherwise, nothing makes sense. Lev puts his bandaged hand on my shoulder. This might sound very strange to you, Lou, but I feel free for the very first time in my life, and at the same time, I feel so lonely. I've never felt so free in my entire life. I can say whatever I like without fear of the authorities, but I've never felt so alone. It is a paradox, isn't it? Maybe life is just about confronting one paradox after another. I don't know how to respond, but thankfully Louisa speaks up. Her kind nature shines through her gentle tone. Lev, she says, coming out of the Soviet Union, going through the jungle, now off to the United States, You need to give yourself time to find your way. Your journey wasn't easy, but you're going good places now. She squeezes Lev's arm with both her hands. No words can describe the gentle love I see pouring out of her hands like a wellspring. All I can think about is kissing each of her hands, embracing each of those graceful fingers. I miss Marina and Vazia, says Lev. This journey does not make any sense to me without them. I've spent all my adult life with them. I was the one who introduced them at university. Marina was my classmate. We fought the Soviets together. We partied together. We got drunk together, vacationed together. I miss them. I miss them so much. Lev can't hold back his tears. In the midst of the airport's organized chaos, we are sitting in an emotional bubble, impervious to all the travelers swirling around us. Louisa and I can't find the words to console Lev, an imposing man who now seems small and pale, his body trembling. 
We silently watch Lev wipe his eyes dry with his bandaged hand. I finally find my voice, looking to change the mood. What happened to your hand, Lev? The question makes Lev choke on the coffee he's sipping, spilling a little down the front of his shirt. But the tears are gone, and his natural cheekiness comes back. This, he says, waving his bandaged hair in the air. It's bullshit. That's what you guys say in America when something is a lie, right? Bullshit? Well, this is Soviet bullshit, KGB style. A going away present from the KGB, says Lev. The interrogator pulled my fingernail out. Oh no, Louisa, I groan simultaneously. Lev shudders, takes a deep breath and continues. Oh yes. It was the most horrible pain I've ever experienced. I blacked out and thought I had died. But I survived it, just like I got through all the rest of their humiliating techniques. And now I'm so happy to be here with you. There's hope again in my life. Lev gives us a big smile, but Louisa gives me a distressful look. I put my hand on Lev's shoulder and look hard into his eyes, showing my alarm. Lev, you should have told me about this before. We could have gone by a hospital, why didn't you? I didn't want anything, he says, to get in the way of our road to freedom. Lev, listen to me. This is a crime punishable under the United Nations Convention Against Torture. We need to document this with a doctor as soon as we arrive in the States and file a lawsuit against the perpetrators. Can you identify them? Can you name them? Lev smiles and shakes his head. My friend, you are so naive, he says. Don't get me wrong, you and your lady friend are the kindest and most gentle souls I've ever met. But you have no idea who you're dealing with here. You think these people give a damn about the United Nations or any nice conventions about torture? Who's going to hold them responsible? Who? I'll tell you who. Nobody. No, I say determinedly. We will hold them responsible. We won't let them get away with this. Oh, Luke, says Lev with a trembling voice. I'm just happy I'm out of that black hole. Louisa silently stands and gives Lev a hug. Lev hugs her back gratefully. When their embrace ends, I say, Sorry for what you went through, Lev, but it's over. You're safe now. We'll do everything in our power so you can have a normal life going forward. You deserve it. Luke normal life? I could never have a normal life. Not anymore. I'm sorry to always give you guys my bad news. When you say everything is possible, I say it's impossible. When you say, don't worry, it's going to be okay, I say nothing will be okay. When you see happy stuff, I see nothing but gloom and doom. You Americans are such optimists. We are such... Suddenly unable to express himself. Lev covers his face with his hands and starts sobbing again. We silently wait for the storm to pass. His weeping seems to burst from a deep and ancient well of anguish and fear, each teardrop finally releasing years of amassed repression. We are such goddamn pessimists, he manages to say, wiping his eyes with his bandage. Sorry for bawling like a baby, he says. I don't know what came over me. He pauses to listen to the music on the Café PA system. I love this song. We used to listen to Alain Souchon in Vasya's apartment and imagine that we were walking along some cobblestone street in Montmartre. Do you guys listen to Alain Souchon? Louisa and I look at each other with a shrug. We don't know him, I say. Do you know any other French singers, Lev asks? Besides Edith Piaf, says Louisa. Not really. 
Lev has a surprised look on his face. Henry Miller said America is a cultural desert, no? Lev, he also said that living in the United States is an air-conditioned nightmare. Is that true? It's Henry Miller, Lev. You can't take him seriously. When he lived in Paris, his sole purpose was getting into Anais Nin's panties. She was a sex bomb. He'd say and do anything just to get her in bed. He wrote with his dick, and he was damn good at it. Louisa gets my sarcasm and starts laughing. Lev, here's a secret I continue. If you want to be appreciated by French intellectuals, start bashing Americans, especially anyone who lives in the left bank. It's a national sport, and Henry Miller understood that. Is it because they're all leftist socialists? Yes. It's something we never understood in Soviet Union. Don't people see what that vile ideology did to the people in the USSR? They say that the USSR was not real socialism. They say it was a bad experiment. Lev now launches into an eloquent tirade for us and anyone in the Columbus Cafe to hear. How many such bad experiments before those pseudo-intellectuals wake up to the fact that a society based on individual rights is the only one where a human being can live free? Have people never read Locke or Jefferson about freedom? Are they really trapped in Karl Marx's demonic views on the future of mankind? My friends, you must know this. Karl Marx hated everybody and everything. Bossy and I studied all his published articles. Have you ever read any of them? Marx and Friedrich Engels published their own magazine called the Rheinische Zeitung. As early as 1849, Marx wrote that when the class war happens, there will be primitive societies that are not capitalistic yet, like Basques, Serbs, Scottish Highlanders, and all Slavic people. He called them racial trash. He said there are two stages behind in the historical struggle, so that they must perish in the coming revolutionary holocaust. Marx and Engels were the first people to advocate racial extermination. Marx is the forefather of modern political genocide. Still, so-called intellectuals around the world worship him and long for a society based on his ideals. It's exactly what happened in the USSR. All Marx's ideas came to fruition, including racial extermination. Lenin and Stalin deported, exiled, and murdered entire nations. People have to finally wake up. Lev is breathing fire now, speaking with singular passion. If you are not free, you cannot experience the gift of life in its fullest, period. With collective ownership of property, all incentives for working hard and accomplishing anything just vanish. The idea behind collective goods is that everyone has equal abilities. But we are not born equal. Everything has to be based on natural law. Some of us are hard workers, but others are lazy. Some are honest, others are thieves. You can't put them all in one basket and ask them to share the fruits of their labor. They've not worked equally or contributed in the same way. Everyone must create his or her own personal journey of growth and benefit from it accordingly. And for that, you have to be free. Unlike equality, liberty is natural. We are all born free. Louisa puts her hand on Lev's shoulder to get him to lower his voice. He nods his head and continues in almost a whisper. Unelected bureaucrats start regulating labor and property for their own good. Become the de facto ruling class. If you're not part of their nomenclature, the administration, then you live like a serf with no rights. You become their slave. Look at East Germany, North Korea, Vietnam, or China. Whatever they call themselves, communists or socialists, it makes no difference. People live under autocratic regimes that are run by bureaucratic apparatchiks. 
There are no individual rights, no viable economy, and they enforce authoritarian thought control from top to bottom. It's easy to live in Europe, consume all the goods that your hardworking ancestors have created for centuries, and advocate a communistic, socialistic, la-la land that does not and will never exist. Except it's a poisonous dream. All it leads to is destruction, poverty, gulag camps, and death. At least 100 million people have been killed by communist regimes. Socialism is not about the redistribution of wealth, like many leftists think. Socialism is about consolidation of power. History has proved it. I want freedom. I want to make my own decisions about how to live my life. People at surrounding tables in the cafe are staring at us. Lev lowers his voice. I apologize for being so loud, he says. We're talking about things that are very close to my heart. We fought for freedom and people died for it. It's hard to explain to others what it was like. But everyone is entitled to his or her own opinion. Who am I to judge? I know nothing. I'm pathetic. Just look at me, a man with no home, no country, and no family. I am so pathetic. Lev takes a deep breath and breaks into a coughing attack again. Let's stop all the politics, says Louisa, and focus on making sure that Lev is feeling better, right? I take her hint and add my own closure. I'm with you, Louisa. Fuck the politics and the politicians. What good ever came out of them anyway? Lies, lies, and more lies. Lev is drained, suddenly wordless. Just then, our flight is announced. We move toward the gate, line up behind all the other passengers, and finally board the big 747 finding our three seats in a center aisle in the middle of the airplane. Soon we are up in the air, thankfully on our way back to the land of the free and the home of the brave. Chapter 53 Somewhere over the Atlantic, I found the right moment to break the good news to Lev. All three of us had slept through the takeoff and the jet's steep ascent into the clouds. Now we're awake and a little refreshed. Through the plane's windows on either side of the cabin, we catch a glimpse of the blue, sun-dappled Atlantic Ocean stretched out from one horizon to the other. A friendly steward comes along the aisle with his movable cart and serves Lev a couple of miniature bottles of vodka with a glass full of ice cubes. Louisa and I ordered fruit drinks. I've got a surprise for you, Lev, I say, standing up once the steward has moved past our row. Maybe a real bottle of vodka, Lev says, holding up the miniatures with a smile. No. Something better. I get my briefcase out of the overhead bin and sit down next to Lev. Then I pull out an official-looking envelope and hand it to him. From the American Embassy of Paris, Lev says, looking at the return address. For me? Open it. What is it? Lev seems caught off guard. You'll see. Lev opens the envelope and finds inside his authorization for permanent residency in the United States of America and the space after reason for refuge. The document says, Political Exile. Oh my God, it's for Mr. Lev Horowitz. No more comrade bullshit. The embassy had a courier bring it to us when we landed in Paris, before we drove to Calais to look for you. Our friend Nicholas made good on his promise. He also got all the papers ready for Vasya and his family. It's only a matter of time. We're talking just a few more weeks. Lev's mouth drops open, though he doesn't speak. He suddenly looks disoriented and gloomy. I thought you'd be happy, I say. Lev takes a deep breath and composes himself, finally rewarding us with a little forced smile. Luke, you always appear out of nowhere to help us. 
Thank God there are people like you in this world. Well, that wasn't much help last time around. You gave us hope, and that was so important. Lev undoes his seatbelt and stands up abruptly. I'm feeling a little nauseous. Be back soon. I turn and watch him make his way to the rear of the plane and disappear inside one of the airplane's restrooms. Louisa and I exchange a silent look. Maybe you should go check on him, says Louisa. I think you're right. I make my way down the aisle and stand vigil outside Lev's restroom door, letting a steady stream of other passengers get to vacant restrooms. Just waiting for my friend, I say over and over. A couple of minutes go by and still no sign of Lev. Finally, I knock on the door and move closer to say, Lev, are you okay in there? Lev. Without warning, the bathroom door opens and Lev reaches out, grabs my wrist and pulls me into the bathroom with him. Then he quickly slams the door shut and locks it. There's so little space that her faces are almost touching one another. Luke, I didn't want to talk about Vasya in front of your lady friend. It's too gruesome. Gruesome? Yes. After you left, Vasya decided never to compromise anyone. He wanted to study law and become a human rights lawyer inspired by you. But the KGB had different plans for us. They were going to arrest us all anyway, even if you had managed to publish the real dissidents list. I knew it. Vasya knew it too. They tricked me, those sons of bitches. I never figured that they had found your list inside my boots and replaced it with their fake list. You're new to this game, Luke. They've been in it for the last seven decades. At least you got out. Vasya warned me all hell was about to break loose. That was just before he burned down that ridiculous Marx Engels Lenin poster on Letenyi Prospect. What did he do? He set the damn poster on fire. It was gigantic. Everyone in the city hated that damn thing. It was an ugly reminder of our history. There they were, Marx, Engels, and Lenin all together, the so-called founders of the proletarian dictatorship. What bullshit. We called it the three-headed hydra. It was fantastic when Vasya made it disappear. Fire was all over the news. It was a big scandal for the authorities. Then, of course, they arrested us all. Where is Vasya now, do you know? We're in Lubyanka together. However, I think they took him to Psychushka. Like a mental asylum? Yes, in our country, when you speak the truth, they assume that you must be mentally ill, so they send you to Psychushka. And you're really screwed. With our noses almost touching, I can feel Lev's hot breath with every word. He's sweating profusely and his lips are trembling. They arrested Arkady, too. The KGB beat him up so bad, I think they punctured his lung. Bastards, I murmur furiously. They're sick, cruel people. Yes, they're sick and cruel. And very smart, way too smart. They've managed to stay in power for 70 years now by perfecting the art of intimidation right down to the last tiny detail. Here I am, flying with you to freedom. A free man, finally, but I can't relax. Not for even a moment. I'm afraid. I'm afraid that somehow they're going to make this plane turn around or force it to make an emergency landing and then burst in, handcuff me and take me back to Lubyanka. I know it sounds irrational, but that's what fear is. Can't explain it. Maybe I lived in fear far too long and now it has taken root inside my head and won't go away. No one is going to stop you from getting to the States. Speaking to you calms my nerves, but I don't want to upset your lady friend. Arkady told me in the prison that they had already started injecting Vasya with a decoder. What's a decoder? 
It's a powerful medication called haloperidol. They tell you it's going to balance your moods, but it really kills your short-term memory, the side effects of causing Parkinson's disease. And if that doesn't work, then they take you to farming. Farming? That's exactly what they call it. Farming. They farm you out, turn you into a vegetable. A few injections of psychedelics mixed with toxins and God knows what else, sometimes even radioactive elements. That doesn't kill you. Transforms your brain into a vegetable. You have no more free will left, nor any sense of your own self. You're better off dead. Awful, awful, awful. Now do you understand why I feel so guilty? Why I'm not celebrating this wonderful gift you've given me? I'm here with you, but my mind and heart are with Vasya. Does Marina know any of this? Lev shakes his head. One of the airline hostesses knocks on the door and asks discreetly if there's a problem. Thank you, we're fine, I call out. Coming out now? No. I didn't give Marina any details. I'm afraid it would kill her. She suffered enough. When they released me, I called her and told her that I was leaving for France, trying to get to England. I lied and said Vasya would be released following me very soon. Let's go back to our seats. Luisa is no doubt getting worried. The course is Lev, adding, By the way, I have a cousin in America. Her name is Masha Horowitz, and she lives in Brighton Beach. She has a bakery there. I was able to call her from Calais. She said I can stay with her family, and I can work in their bakery if I ever get to New York. I want to stay there until Marina comes over. And Vasya, I ask. Oh, my dear Vasya, Lev murmurs hopelessly. 